If you've got your Bibles, let's do this. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. We're looking at um, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And so he's, he's written this letter to a church that he hasn't been to before, but he wants to go, and he's on his way. Um, he'll actually end up getting there differently than he thought he was going to get there. He thought he was going to go to Jerusalem, and then he would uh, then, then travel on his own over to Rome. What happens is he gets arrested in Jerusalem. He is imprisoned, bound in chains, and then this long, um, arduous journey that he'll finally end up in Rome, but he'll end up in Rome in prison, um, as it all turns out. But he's writing them because he wants them to know, he wants to bring the gospel to them, and he's been outlining what the gospel is. And last week we looked, and he gave us this sort of declaration of the gospel. And he said, hey, this is what it is. It's, this is the gospel that, that, um, that God has provided a way for you to stand right before him. And the way that he did that, the way that he provided that was through his son, Jesus. And he says that Jesus is the one, is the righteousness. He's provided the righteousness we need through his son, Jesus. And then he answers a series of questions at the end of chapter three, sort of applying, what does this mean to our life? Well, when we get to Romans chapter four, what Paul's going to do is he's, after he's declared it and explained it and applied it, now he's going to illustrate it. And the whole chapter of chapter four is him illustrating what does it mean that we can stand right before God apart from anything that we do. That we can be made right with God apart from anything that we would do to contribute to that. And it is radical what Paul is saying. No one had ever said anything like what Paul is saying. And yet, he's going to argue this is not something new. This is very, very old. And um, that's why he's going to go to Abraham. One uh, writer um, said this. He said that, that Romans is the most reasoned, um, cl closely reasoned, logical presentation of God's dealings with sinful man that's ever been penned. I'd agree with that. And I would say it this way, that no other religion speaks of God justifying the ungodly. That's the way Paul's going to say it in verse 5 of Romans 4. So every other religion teaches you that you must produce or cultivate or muster up inside of you some kind of righteousness or some kind of goodness or some kind of beauty in order to be acceptable to God. In fact, the other religions... I would say they have it right about our needing a righteousness to be acceptable, but they have it wrong when they talk about where righteousness comes from, and they have it wrong when they talk about what kind of righteousness it is, and they have it wrong when they talk about the God whom it is they're trying to be accepted by. You know, Kent Hughes, he observes this. He says, actually, you don't have to look outside of other religions um, to find this huge misunderstanding of how we get to God. He, he says it this way. He says, all this actually describes our American man-on-the-street folk theology quite well. He says, despite the fact that Amazing Grace is our favorite hymn, most people think that if you just do your best, you somehow will make it to heaven. Modern man is, as a matter of fact, deeply hostile to the concept of justification by faith alone 
through God's grace. He's much more comfortable with the motto, we get our salvation the old-fashioned way. We earn it. He says, justification through the good life. See, that's what makes sense. And yet Paul's going to say, no, no, no. That's not how the Bible presents it. It's not how the Bible has ever presented it. In fact, the, the Bible says, you know, it presents this picture of God's holiness that is not matched in any other religion's literature. As, as, as religion's literature speaks about their God, no God is presented as holy as the God of the Bible. In fact, the holiness of God is presented in a way that it cannot be looked upon that his holiness can't be fully seen. The, the heights of his glory are only pointed to. But nobody can dare make the journey there. In fact, a majesty he has that knows no bounds or limit. Not even time or space. And not only are the heights of God's holiness... Uh, presented in a way that cannot be measured. Neither can the depths of God's grace be measured. So no matter how low you may go, and you know, maybe you're the lowest person in, in the history of mankind. Maybe you are. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and you actually, someone in here is actually the lowest low that anybody in the history of mankind has ever gone. The Bible presents a grace that you cannot even reach at how low you are. You, we cannot find the depths of God's grace is the way the Bible speaks about it. And so this morning, what we're reminded of is we're reminded that the righteousness that we need, the, the beauty, the perfection, the, the right standing with God that we need to be acceptable to Him, He's provided it for us. In fact, the righteousness that His holiness demands is delivered freely to us by His gift of grace. And what Paul's going to say, what he's going to argue again this morning, is it's received by faith apart from any work, apart from any merit, apart from any worthiness on our part. And so that, that's, the, that's the point this, this morning. If you don't get anything else, so, so somebody's going to say, it sounds like that you stood up for 30 minutes and all you said was that we receive righteousness through faith. And if that's all you get this morning, then, then I did it right, okay? That, that's what Paul's going to say over and over and over and over again. Here in chapter 4. He declared the gospel. He applied the gospel. Here in chapter 4, he's going to illustrate the gospel. Look at what he says. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, so what about Abraham? That's what Paul's going to say. 
What, what about the, the man who is the hero of our faith, the, the hero of our religion, the one that as we look back in the Old Testament, the, the Jews would say, we can, so we came from Abraham. What, what about him? Paul's going to say, he's going to use that, what shall we say then, six times. This is the first of six. He'll use it throughout Romans. But then he says, listen, gained by Abraham. And when you thought about Abraham, and in in, you thought about his life, four scenes came to your mind. You would think about Genesis chapter 12, where you're introduced. So after chapter 11, after, you know, the, the mankind has come together at Babel to build a tower to God, and he has to stoop down to even see it, and then he separates the languages. And even after the flood, this new blank slate of mankind turns around, and they end up shaking their fist at God. We're going to do life without you, God. And as a reader of the Bible, you get to the end of chapter 11 and you think, what in the world is the hope for mankind? And all of a sudden, we're introduced in the narrative to a man named Abram, whom God calls out of the Ur of Chaldeans. He calls him out of a place that would have been known for their polytheism. It is very likely Abraham worshipped the sun god. Okay? And God looks down, chooses a man, and the part of the narrative is as though saying, God says, listen, I have a plan, and I'm going to start with Abram. And so he chooses a man, the most unlikely of all men, a man who's, who's aged, a man who's married to a woman who's past the age of childbirth, and he calls this man and he says, listen, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me to a land and I'm not going to tell you anything about it. You just follow me and I'll let you know when we get there. And not only that, I'm going to take you to a land and it's going to be yours. I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to make descendants come from you. In fact, if you were able to count all the grains of sand in the world, you couldn't begin to come close to how many descendants were going to come from you. And also, Abram, I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to make you a blessing to the entire world. Well, this is a guy who's already started collecting retirement checks. And God promises all of these things. And yet, Abraham believes God and in his obedience, he follows God into the unknown and the impossible. Well, you would have known that about Abraham, and then you would have fast-forwarded, and you would have known about Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham comes back to God, and he says, hey, listen, all this time's passed. Don't you remember when you called me, and you said, hey, here's this land, and, and I'm going to have descendants, and I'm going to be a blessing, and I just want you to know, some significant period of time has passed, and guess what? I don't have any children. I don't really have a land, and I don't see that I've been a blessing to anybody. And Abraham comes at this moment of desperation and says to God, you, you've got to give me something. And so what God does is he turns around, promises to Abraham again what he'd already promised. Only this time, Abraham's at a place that he cannot do anything except believe God. God says, Abraham, come outside. I want you to look at the stars. Do you see them all? If you could count them, you wouldn't come close to knowing how many descendants you actually are going to have. You are going to be a blessing. There is going to be an offspring that comes from you 
Abraham. And so Abraham believes. He believes God. And what it says is, and this is what he's quoting, Abraham, uh, Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believes God and it's counted to him, it's credited to him, it's imputed to him as righteousness. You'd have known about Genesis 17, about his circumcision. You'd have known about Genesis 22, his place where he goes and he sacrifices Isaac. And so you would have, as an Abraham scholar, knowing those four chapters, thought, man, we are, we're from Abraham. He's our forefather. Except what Paul is saying, and it is contra to what you and I would have believed if we were Jews of that day, Abraham has no reason to boast. Abraham does nothing to earn or merit or be worthy of what God has credited him. See, the teaching of the day about Abraham was this. The Jewish view was that Abraham had favor with God because he was obedient to God. In fact, what they would say is that not only was he obedient, he was, he was obedient, and, and being obedient was the reason he was the recipient of God's promise. In the Mishnah, you find, which is the old rabbinic teachings, it says, we find that the patriarch Abraham kept the entire Torah, which is the whole law, even before it was written. Before it was ever revealed, Abraham kept it all. In fact, earlier than that, you've got the book of Jubilees. It's about 100 B.C. is what the date is. And it says, For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all of the days of his life. Which, when you read that, you want to go, Did you read the whole story of Abraham? I mean, the whole story? Because you know what happens in Genesis chapter 12, he believes God, he's obedient, he follows God. But then, believing God, that God's going to make him a great nation and a blessing to all the people. You know what he does immediately? Walks into a land, sees a king, says, whew, that king's going to think my wife's good looking and probably kill me. So when we get there, Sarah, I want you to tell him, I just want you to tell him kind of a half-truth, that you're my sister. Well, she was kind of a half-sister, but I don't want you to say anything about us getting married because I, he'll kill me. The one who believed that God was going to make descendants come from him and he's going to be a blessing to all and he's going to have a land is afraid that he's going to get killed. He gets into chapter 13 and then in chapter 14 you see that Abraham, um, while he's a hero, he's also wavering. You get into chapter 15 where God promises him and, and, and by faith, and so Abraham believes, and that faith is credited as righteousness. I believe that you'll, you'll bring me a descendant. I believe that a child will come from you. Then you get to chapter 16, and he marries Hagar, and he doesn't marry her. He just takes Hagar's maidservant, has Ishmael. It's a little thing we're still dealing with all these years later. 17, there's circumcision, but 18, there's unfaithfulness. And so there's a sense in which there's a selective memory about Abraham. The prayer of Manassas about that same time concludes Abraham never had need of repentance, ever. That, that, um, that, uh, thou, uh, that, that art, thou, Lord, art the God of righteousness, has appointed repentance unto the righteous, even unto Abraham. 
They claimed that he'd performed the law before it was written. He was perfect in all his deeds and he had no need of repentance. And yet what Paul does is he comes and he shatters your view, my view, everyone's view of Abraham and says, listen, it is not because of Abraham. He was not justified by works. And even if he was, he didn't have anything to boast about before God because he wasn't, although the descendants all claim that they are. Abraham was not justified by works. He was justified by faith because he believed God. And that belief was counted to him as righteousness. Now listen, Abraham believed God. He had a faith in what God had promised him, albeit it, was, it wasn't a perfect faith by any means. I mean, Abraham's faith, it's not the strength of Abraham's faith, it was the grace of God. It's not the consistency of his faith, it's not the unwaveringness of his faith. Faith became the conduit by which he receives what it is that, that was granted to him, that what it is that God gave him, what it is that God credited to him. It was the conduit through which he could receive the righteousness. Faith itself is not righteous. Faith is not the righteousness. It's, it's not a righteous work. It's not the one thing you do. Like God does everything else. And then you do the faith part. That's not how it is. Faith is not righteousness. It receives the righteousness. The, the word here uh, for the received or for counted or for reckoned or maybe yours has, um, if you got an old King James, the imputing, the imputed righteousness. It comes from an old Latin word, imputo. It, it means this. It means to, it's, it's a legal term. It's an accounting term to, to charge or to credit to somebody's account. And the question is, so what gets credited to our account? Well, what Paul's saying is it's not, listen, how it works is you, what gets credited to your account is all that Christ is. What, what Christ is in his righteousness, that gets credited to your account. So, so your faith isn't your righteousness. It, it's like, it, it's what receives the righteousness. It's like, it's like a bank account. You have a bank account and it's totally empty. And your bank account's like the faith. And what it is, is it receives what gets deposited into your account. The bank account's not the money. It receives the money that's imputed into it. When it says we are declared righteous, I want you to hear this is so important. This will make, this will make all the difference in the world to you. When it says that you are declared righteous, it does not mean that you are actually righteous. It means you are declared righteous. You, what it means is that what Christ is gets counted as yours. But you have no righteousness of your own. It's not something that changes you internally so that you can be justified now before God. It is not something that comes as like a, you know, an injection of righteousness that then works its way through you and then you somehow then become righteous enough that you stand before God. That is not what it means at all. 
It means taking someone like you and like me who's not righteous, who's utterly sinful, who has nothing that they can bring before God and God saying about you and saying about me and declaring, despite everything you are, righteous, morally perfect, beautiful in my sight. And he can do that because he clothes us in his son, Jesus. And when he says that about you, he can say that about you because of who his son is, not because of who you are. We're declared righteous apart from our works. Faith Faith is trust in God. It's believing Him. Faith is the conduit by which we receive righteousness. It, it's not the righteousness. It just receives the righteousness. Faith doesn't make you righteous. You will never, ever, ever, ever be dependent on your own righteousness, on your own goodness to stand before God. Faith receives the righteousness of another. It receives the righteousness of Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus gets counted, credited, imputed to your account. We're justified. We're made right before God because of the righteousness of Jesus that gets counted for us. We're not made righteous by Jesus so that we can stand acceptable to God in our own righteousness. We always, only, and ever stand acceptable before God on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. So you're sitting here and you say, Ross, it sounds like you're saying the same thing over and over again. I am. And I am because it is one of the most difficult things as believers to come to terms with. In fact, it is the most difficult thing for you to actually believe is that you do not stand before God based upon who you are. Paul has already argued for three chapters. There's no way that you can. You stand before God because of who Jesus is. Abraham was not in himself righteous, perfect, and blameless. But God treated him as though he were. Martin Luther would say it this way. Um, at the same time, both righteous and sinful. Listen, Christianity is not a sacrifice that you make. It's a sacrifice that you receive. It's a sacrifice that you trust. Now, look, look at what he's going to do. Verse 4. Um, he says, now the one who works, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul's going to talk about the difference between a gift 
and a wage, and it's so vitally important because salvation, listen, salvation's either one or the other, but it is not both, and it cannot be a combination of the two. A wage is something you earn. It is what is your due for what you have done. It's not a gift. When you get paid by your employer, you don't say, thank you for the gift of the salary that I earned. You don't say that. It's what you, and if, and if you don't get, if you don't get what is your due, then that's unfair. By the way, Paul will say that our, the wages of sin, what we, what we deserve for sin, the wages of sin are death. Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness and it is not based upon his obedience in Genesis chapter 12 when he obediently followed God. You know where it's based? He quotes from Genesis 15 when Abraham is at his lowest moment and has nothing to offer and nothing to do. In fact, he'll go on to say later in chapter 4, he'll say, he hoped against hope. He believed what was impossible. He believed what only God could do because he could do Nothing. It's not grounded in Genesis 12. It's not grounded in Genesis 17, the circumcision. He's going to argue, listen, he was counted righteous long before he was ever circumcised. And it's not going to be on Genesis 22 when he took, took Isaac up to be sacrificed and then a substitute was provided. That's not why he was counted righteous. Although a Bible scholar in here will say, well, what about James? Doesn't James say that? And I will say, James is not talking about being counted righteous as Paul is. James is talking about what does a faith look like? How does, what, what, what does a faith demonstrate about being declared righteous already? That's what James, James and Paul are talking about two entirely different things. Paul is talking about how is one declared righteous? It's through faith. James is talking about a faith that demonstrates you have been declared righteous. And that faith, that faith is alive, it's not dead. It, it does produce fruit because you've already been declared righteous in Jesus. Well, he's made righteous through faith. He's declared righteous through faith when he believes God and he can do no other. In fact, founder of Dallas Seminary, Dr. Lewis Bear Schaefer, he used to say it this way. He said that the word for believe in Genesis 15, 6 is a Hebrew word, aman. It's the same word we get amen from. It's, it's the word that is used in the New Testament where Jesus will say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, as he speaks about truth. It, it's truth declared. It is, it is truth that is. To say amen is to say, so be it. To say amen is to say, I trust you. And, and what Dr. Schaefer would say is, is to say amen. Abraham amened the Lord. As God said, so shall your offspring be. Abraham said, amen. And not anything I can do. But I trust that you can. 
It's a faith. It's, it's what's required in faith. It's the message that concerns the redemptive plan of God in Jesus. And it's essentially a statement that says, listen, so shall you be. Be made righteousness. It's for you to say, okay, amen. I, I trust that. To receive it. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who, and then Paul says this, justifies the ungodly. That person's faith is counted as righteousness. That person's faith gets imputed with righteousness, receives the righteousness. The, one who know, the ones who know by their work, they cannot become godly. The, you, you, you can't achieve godly righteousness by anything that you do. You have to receive the godly righteousness by faith. The only kind of people that are saved, do you know the only kind of people that are saved? Ungodly people. Ungodly people are saved. They're the only ones that get declared righteous. So then what Paul does, he says, oh, that's Abraham, let me give you another example. Let me take you to King David, your other hero. And so he says in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those, he's quoting from Psalm 32 here, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The illustration is from Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 is one of the two psalms that David writes after he is um, caught up in the adultery with Bathsheba. After he's fallen as low as one can go. The one whom God made an eternal, everlasting, unconditional covenant with. That your son, David, you will have a son that will reign forever. David commits an adultery. He abuses his power. He does things unthinkable. Murders the, the husband of the one whom he commits adultery with. He's confronted by Nathan. He comes to own his sin. He writes Psalm 51 almost immediately, and then Psalm 32 is some time has passed, and he's thought about it even more. And, and what he comes to realize is that God will not count his sin against him. And so you got to wonder, okay, if you're arguing, Paul, about this righteousness that gets counted for us, this imputing of righteousness, this con uh, reckoning of righteousness that comes to us, and then he turns around and uses a negative example that says he won't count, he won't impute, he won't reckon your sin. How do those two things sink together? I would say the answer is this, that God justifies the ungodly. See, what happens is David comes and he acknowledges that he's a sinner. He knows it. And yet he knows that he is still blessed by God because the Lord God will never count his sin against him. 
What? What do you mean he's not going to count his sin against him? Because he knows, listen, being in a state of having righteousness credited for you means that your sin is not counted against you. And though you are sinning, it cannot condemn you. It does not affect your status before God. I want to walk you through it for a second. Because I know it sounds too, no, it can't be right. It is right. That's exactly what Paul is saying. And Abraham is saying. And Moses is saying. And David is saying. David will say, you forgave, you, you forgave the guilt of my sin. And the image he uses is this drowning image, this drowning in guilt. And he said, I was looking for a hiding place. I was drowning. I was trying to protect myself. I was covering myself. And it's the same word that's used in Genesis 3, 8 when, when it says Adam and Eve were trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. That David was trying to hide himself and trying to cover himself. It's like Adam and Eve and they were naked and they didn't know it. They, they were morally beautiful, nothing to be ashamed of. Sin comes in with all its guilt and all its shame and they try to hide. They try to hide from God. They try to hide from each other. One writer makes this great point that if you cover yourself, trying to cover yourself, you'll never be able to be covered by God. Unless you're unwilling to, un unless you're willing to uncover yourself, to willing to be naked in front of him and to say, I, I bring nothing here. There's nothing I can do to cover over my sin or make up for my sin. God, I have to trust that you can make me clean because I can't do it. Until you realize that, you cannot be truly covered. If you cover yourself, God says, I have to expose you. If you expose yourself, I'll cover you. I'll make you beautiful. I'll give you back the beauty that you lost. You, you've spent your life trying to cover over, deal with your deep sense of shame and guilt and regret. And David says, God comes along and says, hey, listen, I don't impute that to you. I have taken that and put it on another. So that's what it means when he says it doesn't count your sin. I don't impute the sin to you. And the reason is, is because he's imputed your sin to another. Forgiveness is based on the cleansing of another. It doesn't mean that your sin is undone or that it is rewound or it's as if it never happened. It just means it goes away from you. It doesn't go on your record. It gets transferred to another. Someone else, someone else becomes guilty for what you did. And not, not just symbolically or metaphorically, but in reality. Your sin gets transferred to Jesus. It gets counted as his. And then he pays the price. He dies for the sin. This is not a, it's not a cover-up. It's a covering. 
Jesus gets clothed with our sin. And in turn, God says, I clothe you. I count to you the righteousness of Jesus. It's the great exchange. He gets stripped naked. His garments are cast for lots. He was stripped of everything and clothed in our sin. And we in turn get covered with His moral beauty and perfection. His righteousness becomes our hiding place. See, the Christian, the Christian is a person who believes that God justifies the ungodly. And if you try to do something else, it proves that you don't understand that. If you say, listen, but God justifies the ungodly, and, and, and yeah, yeah, but, but I really think I ought to clean up, up my life a little bit first. I mean, I really, really just got to get to this certain place, and then, then I can, you know, come to God. Then you don't understand. Listen, God justifies the ungodly. Not those that have tried to clean themselves up. Come just as you are. As ungodly as you are. That, in fact, is what qualifies you to come. If you start apologizing for your ungodliness or seeking to improve it, you don't really understand how ungodly you truly are. See, there's this great hope in this word counted or reckoned or uh, imputed. See, the first one is bad news, and that is that for every single one of us, we're born into Adam's sin. Adam's sin is imputed to us. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're born sinners. We're, we're born a sinner. We're born into Adam's sin. His sin is counted to us. And then what happens is that Christ comes and He dies and all of our sin, all of our ungodliness, all of our unrighteousness, all our big sin, capital S, and all our little sins, past, present, and future, by the way. Get put on Jesus. Counted to Him. You know what this means? I say this sometimes and people... It makes them very uncomfortable. But here's what this means. That all your sin, past, present, future, is put on Him. Which means this. If you're a believer, your greatest sin might be in front of you, not behind you. You could fail in ways you can't even imagine today. And yet that's already been counted to Jesus. And it will not change your position before God. Christ died. All of your sin is imputed to Him. He bears the full consequence of your sin. Cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then declares, It is finished. And then, as the Holy Spirit brings an individual to faith, the third 
amazing piece of God's bookkeeping takes place, and that is that the righteousness of, of God, the righteousness of Jesus, gets counted for you, gets imputed to you. And you receive that through faith. I'll give you an illustration. It's from John Bunyan. So he uh, was the author of the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, at one time, I, it was the most printed book after the Bible in the history of the world. And I, I hate, I think Harry Potter surpassed that actually. But, but anyways, here's what John Bunyan said. So one day I was passing into the field and this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He lacks my righteousness because my righteousness was always in front of Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and my irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time those dreadful Scriptures of God that used to trouble me now became my joy. And I went home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. Do you know this morning that God provides you salvation? He provides you a perfection. He provides you a moral beauty. He provides to clothe you in the perfection of His Son. A perfection that is constant and unchanging. To stand you in a position before Him where He declares about you righteous. And there's not anything you can do to change that position. Oh, we'll talk about what it means when we get to sanctification. When it talks about, you know, that through the power of the Spirit we become, we're in the process of becoming who we already are in Christ. But who we already are in Christ never changes. Can never be undone. For those who have received the gift of His Son, Jesus, by grace, through faith. You do nothing to contribute to it. You receive it. You bask in it. You glory in it. You rejoice in it. And you know what it is to then be called a child of God, a son or a daughter. 
and to cry out to him, Abba, Father, all your sin taken from you and put on Jesus, all his, protect, all his perfection taken and put on you, clothed in who he is. Have you done that this morning? Have you received that by faith? I would say if in this morning there's any part of you that is trying to get to a place where then you can come to God, you can stop. Come in your current ungodliness. That is how you can be saved.